Beyond the Books is a podcast from the University of Edinburgh's School of Literatures, Languages and Cultures that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at research and the people who make it happen. I'm Emma Aviat, a PhD student of English Literature and current postgraduate Web and Communications intern. In this episode of Beyond the Books, I speak with Dr. Peter Davies, Professor of Modern German Studies in the Department of European Languages and Cultures. We recorded this podcast before he started his Leverhulme Trust major research fellowship last September, titled How Are Victims' Voices Heard? Interpreting and Translation at a Holocaust Trial, which explores the work of translators and interpreters in the trial of 22 former SS Auschwitz personnel in Frankfurt in the mid-1960s. I get to ask him all about his hopes for this project, as well as speak about some of his past articles that focus on one of the most prominent interpreters from the trial, Vera Kepkayev and how she helped give a voice to dozens of Holocaust survivors. This leads us to the discussion of the many concerns and roles that an interpreter in these institutionalized settings plays, and the crucial role of translation in defining public perceptions of the survivor experience, both in the past and potentially in the future. It was a fascinating discussion, so thanks so much for giving it a listen. Hi, Peter. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, thank you for having me. Whenever I have this podcast, I always try and ask all my guests a little bit about their background and how they came to the University of Edinburgh, and for you specifically, the Department of European Languages and Cultures. Um, would you mind giving us a bit of insight into that? Yeah, I mean, it's not an amazingly exciting story. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I I took a degree in, in German and Russian at Manchester University, in you know in the 1980s so it's a fair while ago now um and that's my background is in is in modern foreign languages um i spent some time i did my on my undergraduate year abroad in berlin and moscow um this was like just before the end of communism so i was able to see it from from that kind of angle and since then i did a fair amount of, i worked as a translator a little bit to try and fund my phd later on and worked as an English teacher and sort of did various things in various parts of the world, but um, was asked whether I wanted to do a PhD in Manchester again. Um, it's one of those things that I, I never really thought a PhD was the thing I wanted to do, but you, you need somebody to come and approach you and sort of say, well, actually, why don't you think about this? You know, and that's, that's what happened to me. So that was, that was really great. Um, and my PhD was actually on East Germany, right, and East German culture, East German, the sort of relationship between Soviet cultural policy and the work of East German artists in the sort of the early period of East Germany up to the mid-1950s. So I've moved away a little bit from that in uh, recent times. But um, then I went and worked in Germany for a couple of years as a, as a language teacher um, and came back to Manchester, got a postdoc there, and basically um moved moved to edinburgh after looking for jobs for a while uh, came to edinburgh in 2000 and have been here ever since what originally if you don't mind me asking drew you to modern languages um just as an undergraduate level yeah undergraduate level well it was it was a thing i was i was strongest at school really i mean there's um i found that i have this kind of brain grammar is I find really interesting and also i really love the kind of literature and culture of the, of the things that we were looking at at school um and Russian in the period it was Glasnost and Perestroika it was quite seemed like an attractive kind of thing to do it had a future to it you know and there was lots of people studying it at the time so so I went into it then it then went out of fashion for a while but obviously in recent years has, has come back in and I'm now very very glad that I did it I have to say because it's helping me follow some of the things that have been going on 
very recently, sort of immediately, with some of the kind of social media stuff coming out to Russia and the, the protests that people have been holding there. Yeah, no, I, there's definitely parallels. I think that's why I was so excited to speak to you right now. I think I really relate to what you're saying. Like, it's one of those things that you're strongest at. I think a lot of us in this school will probably realize yeah, that yeah, that's, yeah. that's a very yeah. strong yeah, yeah. motivating factor. Yeah. And you're like, this is me. This is what I'm good at. So speaking of being good at it, I know you were recently awarded a Leverhulme Major Research Fellowship that's Award right. for your project. How are victims' voices heard? Interpreting and translating at a Holocaust trial, which congratulations, by the way, that's well, amazing. Um, so what are some of your research goals for this project and what are some of the questions you're looking to explore? Yeah, the project um, concentrates on a single trial in the mid-1960s in West Germany. Um, It was the trial of 22 former Auschwitz guards. Um, There's quite a long prehistory to it as well, but um, it's sort of uh, from 1963 to 1965 is the actual trial, the actual public trial. Um, And it, was, it wasn't the first trial in West Germany. Well, obviously, you had the Nuremberg trials, but then once West Germany had been founded in, in 1949, there were a couple of other trials, uh, former SS people there. But this was the most high-profile one, um, and also it's the largest one. I, still, I think it's still the largest criminal trial in German history, as far as I know. Um, and you had these 22 defendants, but you also had several hundred witnesses as well being invited. It, the whole thing went on for about 18 months. Um, and a lot of these witnesses were former concentration camp inmates, former political prisoners, uh, Jewish prisoners, um, from some Soviet prisoners of war, various other kinds of people, um, lots of different victim groups represented there. Um, and what I'm looking at is the testimony of um, a lot of these um, witnesses, and in particular the, the, the work of the, the interpreters who were making their voices available. Um, which is why this trial, one of the reasons this trial was such a high profile thing in Germany was they had these witnesses arriving in Frankfurt and speaking directly to a German public for the first time, more or less. People have been watching the trial of Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem shortly before then, but that was, you know, that was in a different country. Um, this was very, very immediate. You could see these people um, in front of you. You know, there's lots of, of TV and, and sort of radio reporting as well as newspaper reporting. So there's quite a lot of public interest. And the interpreters are there making their voices comprehensible and available to the court, but also to um, the public. Um, not all of them needed an interpreter, of course. There were German speakers there as well amongst the victims, but many of them did. And you have... 11 different languages being spoken and, and interpreted. Polish was the most important one, um, but there are there are witnesses in all sorts of different languages as well. So that's the context of the trial. There are, I have three quite concrete goals and one sort of vague aspiration that I don't really know whether it's going to work out or not, right? So um, what I want to do is to describe a trial as a workplace for translators and interpreters. You know, think about the really concrete, their professional context. So their working practices, their pay, um, the attitudes to them as professionals in the court um, and how they deal with the power dynamics of a courtroom. Now, that's quite a big deal in interpreting research already. But this is quite an extreme example where you have people who are Holocaust survivors coming into a courtroom where German is being spoken, the language of you know the Nazis. Um, they can see these 22 SS men staring at them <laughs> from the side of the court. They're standing right in the middle. There's quite a big crowd of people, a big public there, and they're being challenged and questioned 
and the interpreters are sort of mediating there as well. They're sometimes the only person that these witnesses can actually speak to. Um, so how do the interpreters actually deal with this? Whose side do they feel they're on? You know, and what does that mean for their professional practice? Um, because all this, the interpreting research that people do has shown that interpreters are more than just channels. They're not just mouthpieces. You know, they're not they're not neutral, but they sort of organise the testimony situation and they make ethical choices about how to translate moment by moment. Um, so I want to look at that. And we have recordings of these testimonies to listen to as well, which allows us to make that kind of judgment. Um, the other thing is to shift the perspective away from the interpreters, but also to look at the witnesses, the victims themselves, who are obviously the most important people here in this trial. Um, not really thinking about them as legal witnesses. I'm not so interested in their testimony in terms of its value as legal evidence, but more about how their stories are told, how they formulate their experiences through translation and how how their voices can be heard in that situation, how they actually feel about it. You know? The third aim is to contribute to ongoing extensive research on trial interpreting. Um, there's a lot of research on this, uh, not just Holocaust and genocide trials, but actually all sorts of different kinds of criminal trials as well. And I want to try and contribute to that. So we have a specific kind of interpreting. They, it's con consecutive interpreting. So the person speaks and then pauses and then the interpreter speaks and translates. Mm -hmm. That's quite different from the sort of war crimes tribunals like Nuremberg or the Adolf Eichmann trial or perhaps the trials of in, you know, in the former Yugoslavia, for example, the trial of Slobodan Milosevic, um, where you have this simultaneous interpreting of interpreters in booths who are sort of talking simultaneously like they do at the United Nations or in the EU. With consecutive interpreting, the interpreters are sitting right next to the witness. So there's a personal relationship between them. And you, you really concentrate on the voices of both people. Um, mm -hmm. So it draws attention to the voices. It draws attention to the fact that there's translation going on and the, the speech and the qualities of voice in the way that other kinds of simultaneous interpreting through these electronic devices doesn't necessarily do. So it's quite a different sort of situation. So that's the third one. The aspiration is to try and put the trial in a different context that's not really to do with legal history. But I want to think about it in terms of attitudes to migration and linguistic diversity in Germany. The 1960s is a time of mass labour migration to Germany and the, the government is thinking about language services and what it means for people to be encountering bureaucracy and encountering the workplace with limited language resources. Um, and I think there's some connections to make there with the trial. So that's, I don't know whether that will come off, it will depend what I find in the archive, but that's what I want to do. That sounds absolutely fascinating and very important. I think that the real immediate implications of this, like you said, that seem very obvious, um, but then yeah. also just to reframe that history will be something that is so important to be able to do. So I'm looking forward to following it. I know you're just at the beginning now. There's there's so much material. So I need I need time to really get to grips with listening to these testimonies over and over again and analysing them using various methods. And that's that's the thing that's going to take the longest. I'm hoping that writing it up afterwards may not take quite so long, but but we'll see. Two years ought to be ought to do it. I know um, part of that time will be spent going on archival mm. research trips. Where are some of the places that you're going to be going um, and where are these archives that you're going to be looking at? The most important ones for me are in the around the Frankfurt area. Um, 
There's uh, the institute, the research institute, the Fritz Bauer Institute, that's named after the public prosecutor of Hessen, who was instrumental in getting this trial um, set up in the first place. They have an extensive archive about the trial. Um, they also curate the recordings of the trial testimony as well. So I'm mm. going to be going there to to work. And they 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 were really helpful and supported my uh, supported my application as well, which I'm really grateful for. Um, also, the sort of state archives of the state of Hessen, which is the state that, that Frankfurt's in, um, they have a lot of material based on, on, on their justice ministry. And I'm going to go through that um, to see what I can find out about the background of the trial. I need to try and find some biographical information on the interpreters, which is a little bit harder to come by because there's quite a lot of data protection issues to deal with um, there uh, with private, private people who aren't kind of public figures. Um, so I'm just going to see what what I can get there um, when I'm thinking about their employment conditions and, and this kind of thing. Um, but the most important one for me is the trial, the archive of the trial, which fortunately for the pandemic period has been all digitized um, and is freely available. These recordings are freely available online as curated by the Fritz Bauer Institute, which is fantastic. The reason that's happened is that this archive of this particular Auschwitz trial has got UNESCO status. So UNESCO Memory of the World status, I think it was awarded in 2017, as far as I remember, um, which means there's lots of resources available for it to be digitised and, and sort of pub made available publicly. So that's been really helpful to me during the pandemic, um, but also will hopefully, you know, I won't need to spend so much time uh, over there. I can do a lot of the work from Edinburgh. Yeah, I feel like one of the only positives that came out of this pandemic was the fact that so many archives became yeah. digitized and are now so much totally. more accessible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you were speaking about privacy and and that kind of loss of it. And it, that made me think about the article that you wrote, The Interpreter of Horrors, yeah. The Interpreter of Vera Kapkaev and the First Frankfurt Auschwitz Trial, 1963 to 1965, yeah. where you talk about an interpreter who achieved minor celebrity status among observers of the trial and journalists for her work translating Holocaust victims' testimony. Uh, well, this was a pretty interesting feat, you state, um, given that other interpreters who took part in the trial didn't receive that much attention. So could you tell us a little bit about what was so unique about Kakaev's interpretation style and why did it become so important to the trial? Um, she's a really fascinating figure. I haven't been able to establish every biographical detail about her, and then there are some things that I'm not entirely sure about. Um, but she is a... Uh, she was a Russian sort of anti-Bolshevik emigre, was born around about the time of the Russian Revolution. Her family then left and ended up in um, Vilnius, which was in Poland in, in, in that period. Um, and she grew up um, bilingual in Polish and Russian, um, studied law in Vilnius. And then at some, uh, what I think, and I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think there are hints that she was married to a... Russian um, sort of Nazi collaborator, I think, um, someone who who joined the fight against the Bolsheviks on the side of the the Germans. Um, mm. There's there's a lot of gaps in her biography. It's the kind of biography mid twentieth century Central Europe where there's always got gaps. People don't want things to be talked about. So I'm not one hundred percent certain about this yet, but I think that's the case. And they ended up in Germany, West Germany, after the war. He, if he is the person I'm thinking of, he will have fought with the Waffen SS at some point, um, and therefore would not want, would have wanted to avoid being captured by the Soviets. 
um, and presumably some are really executed for being a traitor. So they ended up in West Germany and ended up living there because plenty of these people were able to make a life in, in West Germany after the war. Um, if that is the case, that that's her background, it makes her work translating for a war crimes trial really interesting, um, uncomfortable and emotionally quite difficult, I think. Um, but what she has is an incredible sort of sense of being able to think her, her way into a voice, if you see what I mean. So she studied, she's a lawyer, she understands the legal system, but she studied interpreting. Um, she is incredibly fluent in three languages, so Russian, Polish and German, uh, and is able to interpret between them. Um, and she did most of the interpreting work for the Polish speaking witnesses, who was the largest group. Um, she also interpreted for the Soviet prisoners of war as well, who were speaking Russian. So basically, she was the most visible translator. She has a real feeling, a sense of being able to sort of recreate a voice, you know, for the listener. She she she's she's very good at that, and uh, that's one of the things I think that people responded to, um, and thought of her really as somebody who ventriloquized these witnesses, these these awful experiences that they're that they're relating. She was able to to sort of imitate their intonation, their manner of speaking, find words to convey things that are really very difficult to convey in language. Um, now that's it's not quite what she's doing. Uh, sometimes she's because it, as an interpreter, you're always between two things, right? You're you're working for the power structure, you're working for the institution, and you need to prove to the institution that you can do your job right, because your job relies on it. On the other hand, you're listening to somebody who's sitting right next to you, telling you an awful story, and who is relying on you to support them. So she moves backwards and forwards. Sometimes she she kind of tidies up people's stories a little bit if they're not quite able to say what they want to say she will tidy it up and present it to the court in a way that they can understand um but on other, on other occasions she will sort of act as a part of the disciplinary apparatus for the court so if people move off the subject she'll bring them back onto the subject as interpreter you shouldn't be doing that but she sort of feels quite involved in the situation and i think it's it's partly also all the court personnel and all the um, accused are men. A large number of the, the witnesses are also men. There are there are female witnesses as well, but basically she's a, a female voice here in this situation that's dominated by male voices. And I think um, the visibility of her as a an agent in that situation probably comes from that too. And part of the way people judge female voices as being more about emotion and identification uh, rather than sort of rational distance. I think people are judging her in that way. You know, whereas she's just trying to do a professional job. That's how she sees her job. Um, I think that was a slightly complicated way of describing it, but I was, was trying to paint a sort of sort of picture of her as a personality, really. No, but one thing that I really noticed in that article, and if you want to explain on this more, is that you really speak about Kapkayev in, in three parts. Yeah. One that focuses on how the public saw and responded to Kapkayev, another how the witnesses received her, and then kind of finally the institutional views yeah. of her. Yeah. And as you said, this is, at the end of the day, this this very institutional role or, you know, in, within the trial settings. So how did the views on this role of court interpreter change between these different positions? Yeah, it's, 
it's really interesting and they're very very different um so i'm quite i'm interested in in the the public discourse about the witnesses and there was a lot of press recording reporting on it plus there was some tv and sort of um radio stuff as well lots of interviews with people um there were the, you know there were there were some reporters who stayed there for the whole time just reporting day by day by day on what was being mm-hmm. said and occasionally they mention the interpreters um there's also certain amount of research on on the, the witnesses and their their attitudes to being interpreted and also there's the idea of the institution and its kind of professional standards as well, which were sort of undergoing review at the time. Um, now, the public commentary is is really interesting. And I think a lot of what we can say, we can talk about ideas of kind of trust and identification. There's a really interesting book by a Polish scholar called Małgorzata Triok, who has written about interpreters working in Poland, in post-war Poland and Morkheim's trials. And one of the things she says is that the most important resource that an interpreter has to bring is trust of the people that she's working with, right? And that is actually more important than linguistic accuracy, right? So people she's working with have to be able to trust her. Um, So the institution has to be able to trust her. The people that she's interpreting for have to be able to trust her. Sometimes these different forms of trust clash with each other. Um, What Kapkaev is really good at is presenting herself as a trustworthy actor here. Um, one of the reasons that the public commentary, the sort of journalistic commentary on her work is so focused on her is that she was obviously incredibly competent and they had a lot of problems with other inter- finding interpreters who could do the job, right? And some of them just really couldn't. You know, they employed people who turned up at the trial and just fell to pieces and you know, they, they really couldn't cope with the material. Um, she wasn't the only one who was that competent, but she was the one that was doing the most work, right? So she became a sort of minor celebrity and there were a couple of interviews with her. Um, sort of journalists interviewed her about her life and her attitudes to what she's what she's doing and they talk about her. This is where this quotation, the interpreter of horrors comes from. It's a journalist writing about her as the person who makes available to us an understanding of the awfulness of the experiences of these Auschwitz victims. So in other words, she's an incredibly important person. She's like a a conduit for this sort of awfulness. And also just the fascination of somebody, how how does she feel about doing it? You know, what's the power that she has in the courtroom to um, to sort of shape a testimony? There's, There's that kind of fascination. And there's a lot of questions about her family you know the, the standard things that were that that uh, journalists ask of sort of female celebrities um you recognize quite a lot of this this sort of stuff there but they're just interested in her as as a, as an individual as somebody who's if you like a conduit for emotion and trying to give words to things that there are no words for you know they see her in the, in that kind of way so they don't see her as a kind of a legal professional they see her as something slightly more if you like mystical or literary or something um the witnesses are quite different there's a brilliant oral history project by the scholar Dagie Knellison who has interviewed I don't think there are any or, or very many who are still able to be interviewed nowadays of the witnesses but she a number of years ago interviewed quite a few and a few of them talk about uh Kapkaev. they don't mention any of the other interpreters because she's the one everybody remembers right um and they talk about how it felt to be interpreted. Um, 
And rather than portraying themselves as these kind of passive suffering victims, which is the way perhaps the reporters would talk about them, they portray themselves as people who are actively making their case and making their point and trying to talk about the things that they want to talk about. And they remember her as being this kind of charismatic presence. Part of this is kind of projection, you know, sort of nostalgia. But they they say that she was, one of them says she she presented my words better than I was able to say them. Which, again, is not exactly what an interpreter is supposed to do in a court, but she was very grateful for it, she says, that she was, this this very eloquent woman was able to speak for her. Another one says she was great because I could hide behind the time it took to interpret things in order to gather my thoughts for my next thing, for the next thing I wanted to say. Um, they also, if you listen to the recordings, they will often speak to her directly rather than addressing the judge. Um, they might ask her questions for information about what's going on. They'll, they'll ask, if they don't understand the question, they'll ask her about it. Um, all the things that actually under professional codes of practice nowadays are not supposed to happen in courts, but actually often do as research tells us. Um, and you can hear that happening sort of moment by moment that she, she presents herself as somebody who's trustworthy for them you know, is able to, that they, they can rely on and therefore they're happy about the way the words are being presented. So that's, if you like, that kind of trust. It's a sort of an emotional, personal connection to somebody that you develop. The institution needs a different kind of trust, right? It needs a trust that's based on professional norms, qualifications, bureaucracy. Um, so the interpreters who work for the court are qualified, they have particular qualifications, they're certified, they've sworn an oath which then guarantees that they take responsibility for the accuracy of what they do. Um, and which means, of course, that the court can then forget about interpreting as an issue. And if things go wrong, then the interpreters get blamed. Right. So it's not the problem with the way the court is set up or the power structures in the court or the linguistic ideologies of the court. It's the interpreters who are causing the problem. Um, and Kapkayev is very good at presenting herself when necessary as a professional who understands the legal issues so she can she can present herself in these different ways depending on who is actually asking the question i mean it's really interesting reading all of this because you frame this article so well because you go into all these different evaluations of her and and, and it's really clear to see how they are shifting hmm. and then i think what was so impactful is that you kind of end with how she sees it and after talking about these journalists and what ideas they really wanted to project onto her yeah, um, yeah. and then her response to it so could you kind of give us a a little bit of, of an idea of how Kapkayev evaluated her own work compared to all these different um, external ideas of her. The the important thing about Kapkayev is that she's the only one of these interpreters that we really have any evidence for. There may be people's private correspondence and diaries kept by their families, you know, their children of the other interpreters. I don't know whether it's going to be able, possible to excavate that kind of stuff or whether people are really going to want that sort of stuff to be talked about. But it's very different from the Nuremberg trials, where we get a lot of memoirs by interpreters from of all the different Allied powers. So you get ones from the uh, um, the American side. You get Soviet interpreters make, giving their mem uh, writing their memoirs. You get people from Germany writing their memoirs. Um, they were really aware, I think, that they were making history as people. Um, not only because of the importance of what they were doing at Nuremberg and the, the international profile of it, but also because of the technology that was being developed for 
simultaneous interpreting there, which was very new. So they were all writing about it. They were very excited to write about it and their personalities were very important. In Frankfurt, there's none of that. It's, it's, they're trying to present it as a normal trial, done under normal trial conditions, which it actually, of course, isn't. But um, the interpreters are just professionals. So I imagine some of them just thought, well, I'm going to turn up, I'm going to do my job, and then I'm going to go away. Um, clearly, it's very difficult when you're dealing with that kind of material, but they may have had that sort of attitude and just you know, went off and did something else. Um, Kapkaiv is really different, um, partly just because of the amount of work that she did um, and her profile. Um, and she's aware of the importance of it. So there's a couple of, for example, the interview, the newspaper interview that I, I mentioned um, for one of the, Frank, the major Frankfurt newspapers. There's also a fascinating interview with Dutch television. Um, Dutch TV did a, uh, a sort of a documentary about the trial near the end of the trial. Um, now, clearly, trial participants weren't allowed to give these kinds of interviews while the trial was going on. So she had to wait until it was nearly over before, before she could do it. But... And she talks, she's asked about how she works. And she says she's always trying to catch the truth of an individual voice. That's how she says it there. She also says she feels like she's living through the testimony with the witness. There's a lot of really interesting kind of statements about how she feels about what she's doing. She doesn't quite say that she identifies with, with them because actually that's kind of impossible when somebody's telling that sort of story. But she talks about accompanying them through the the testimony, right, as a kind of a personal guide almost. Um, she also talks about the emotional toll that it takes on her. Um, she's Obviously, these testimonies are very long, right? Sometimes they go on for a whole day. And uh, you, as the interpreter, that's a very long shift. Um, and it's, it's exhausting physically anyway, whatever you're doing. But the emotional toll of it is really difficult. And she talks about feeling like a squeezed lemon at the end of the day. She has this really striking phrase, and then she has to come back and do it again. Um, and she, also, she has this remarkable thing about developing a kind of a sympathetic illness. I'm always slightly dubious about this. She talks about one of the illnesses that people got in the camp based on sort of starvation and, and exhaustion. Um, and she says that she developed this herself and had to have treatment for it. And it's a phlegmon. It's a sort of a some kind of bleeding under the skin, I think. I'm not sure exactly what, what the condition is. It's some, something that, that camp inmates developed quite frequently as, as sort of an abscess. Um, as she said, she got this herself and had to be treated for it. And she thinks it's the sort of sympathetic sort of suffering with them. I'm slightly dubious about this, but it's, it's interesting that she would connect, make the connection yeah. in that way. She says, look, there's a physical toll that we're being... That, that, that I'm going through here. So that's one thing, that's like an extreme form of identification almost with the witnesses. And that's when she's talking to the television station, she talks about this, but um, other times she presents herself as a, as a professional. Um, she's paid much more than the other interpreters, right? There's a, there's a pay scale, um, depending on the difficulty of the work that you do. Um, and she's paid actually a lot more than some of them, more than twice as much in, term, in her hourly rate than some of the interpreters. The archive records people protesting about this, incidentally, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> but there's, um, she actually is also paid more than the law allows for, specifically, which is, so the judge is the one who sets these rates and he values her work so much that he gets her 
a pay rate which is above what you should be paid for this kind of work, right? I've, this is really fascinating. Um, there's an argument about this because the, the accountants get hold of this after the trial and say, look, why is she being paid so much? And so they, there has to be a kind of a, a justification for it. The judge writes a letter in support of her. She writes a letter where she presents herself as the kind of consummate professional, being able to, learning all the vocabulary of the trial, being a legal, legally qualified professional. There's a lot of specialised vocabulary that she had to learn in three different languages, right? And also dealing with people who are trying to speak one language but keep slipping into another. So many of the Polish witnesses slip into Yiddish backwards and forwards and have, you know, she, that's quite difficult to deal with. Um, that sort of multilingualism of many of the of the Jewish witnesses in particular. Um, so she talks about that. Um, and she doesn't really talk about the kind of emotional difficulty there because that's not relevant to the law. So she's presenting herself in different ways for different audiences. Um, so I think we have to be a little bit careful of saying this is how she felt about it. I think she's smart enough to be able to say I need to present myself in this way <laughs> in order to justify my work in this situation so it's against another trust issue. That, I mean that is really fascinating when you try and think about there there's so many abstract and undefinable parts about this experience that to try and you know qualify and quantify what it yeah. is worth is such yeah. a weird yeah. kind of concept to get into it is but you i mean you're dealing with that in a, a the court and the bureaucracy needs these justifications and people reading journalism need a different kind of justification right because yeah. that's what they're interested in but you can you know if you think about some of the other interpreters there's a guy who interprets between yiddish and german who is almost certainly a survivor himself he will have a he has a different relationship to the witnesses that he's interpreting for so there are people that come from the us and they give their testimony in yiddish and he's clearly going to have a different relationship to the witnesses and the way they're speaking about their experiences um than perhaps somebody who's just learned how to be an interpreter you know yeah i mean it it shows exactly why your Libre Hume project is needed because it sounds like there are just so many different approaches to this that need, yeah. they need to be documented and scaled in order to actually get that comprehensive idea of, yeah. of everything. Yeah. It's so it's unique and individual and filtered through one person each time to try and capture. That's a very good experience. way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, there are 16 interpreters that they use, right? And all sorts of these different languages and um, each of them has a different style. Um, each of them develops different relationships with the people, it, um, each of the witnesses wants a different thing from the interpreter, right? Some of them are very, you know, they're well, they're, they, they know exactly what they want and they're very confident and they just speak and then they say their words and that's it. Some of them are really uncertain and absolutely terrified. There's one woman, Helene Goldman, who's uh, a former Czech Jew, a survivor who uh, moved to the United States after the war. And she comes back and wants to speak in English and she talks to her interpreter at times about how scared she is of the situation, right? So the interpreter for her is a person that she can sort of confide in because everything else seems absolutely terrifying, right? The judges are sort of sitting up on this terror, this, this kind of dais and, and sort of questioning her. Um, so that, again, is a, is a relationship. The judge intervenes and stops them doing it at times because it's, it interferes with proceedings, but you can see how... For the witness, a survivor, that would be an emotionally really difficult situation to be in, you know, and therefore yeah. the interpreter becomes a person that you hold on to, you know. Yeah, I mean, to hear your own voice 
mirrored through someone else yeah. must make you identify with them in, in some yes, level of course, that sort of, of anchor yeah. and not to you know turn it around and then kind of ask you about your own translation practices but um one thing that I thought was really interesting when we were emailing before is that you said that before this project and this article um you're really focusing on written testimonies versus verbal yeah. testimonies such as those given at trials how do you find this transition from written to spoken translations um, for your own practice what are some of the differences or similarities to your own approach with this it's a yeah it's a it's a really good question this um mm. and uh obviously working on written translations it's just easier the materials more easily available you've got more time um but if you think about translation activity right if you think about something like the holocaust which which was a hugely multilingual event quite apart from it there were people from all sorts of different countries coming together being concentrated in specific places um and also testimony giving afterwards as well the vast majority of that stuff is spoken um it happens moment by moment people are doing language support lots of informal interpreting lots of language brokering you know, um, going on with people who are fluent in these languages, supporting people who aren't. Um, if you think about people kind of coming together in a in a ghetto, being transported there from across uh, occupied Europe and beyond, they're, they're having to cope with that situation and people are needing to kind of translate for them. You know, they're, they're relying on understanding, getting information as quickly as possible. It's really hard to reconstruct. But it's fascinating. I would really like to be able to, but uh, but it's just you know you, you you rely on secondhand testimonies. You rely on people talking about this kind of thing, which of course is not exactly. You know, there are testimonies of concentration camps when people talk about the linguistic issues there. Primo Levi is a, is perhaps the most famous example, but but there are plenty of others. Um, so written testimonies are just a really really small, an unrepresentative fragment of that kind of stuff but they've been very very influential and so writing about those in terms of their translation has been really interesting you know how a testimony is crosses cultural and linguistic barriers and is received in a different language by different people has been has been a really interesting um project for me um but i there's and there's loads and loads of work been done on this you know for for many years now um i found this interpreting I sort of came to it slightly by chance um, and discovering this incredible material that the Fritz Bauer Institute's curated where we can suddenly hear this and then familiarizing myself with the research on courtroom interpreting. Uh, we, there are many years of research uh, that you can draw on there. And also research on interpreting at the Nuremberg trials, the Eichmann trial, uh, there was the other genocide trials like Yugoslavia or Sierra Leone. Um, there are very there are, there's lots of research there that you can you can draw on. Now Frankfurt's quite unique, but there's still you know um, what I find I find the the immediacy of it, uh, what happens with this kind of interpreting really fascinating, and trying to find ways of reconstructing the sort of the discursive context of this kind of speech, this kind of uh, relationships between the people, really really fascinating. Um, so I suppose, um, yeah, that's, I don't quite know whether that's an answer to that question, but um, that's that's where, where why I shifted anyway, yeah. from one to the other. I mean, it's one of those things today that we're probably going to be seeing more and more, yeah. you know, what is going to be considered worth 
translating in these trials that we're going to have in the future, there's now going to be TikToks of, you know, witness yeah. testimonies. Yeah, so, yeah. so one thing that I kind of wanted to ask as well is given the current crisis that's kind of happening right now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, what relevancy do you see this work on translating testimonies might have today or potentially in the future, um, you know, given how everything works out? Yeah, I'm always kind of slightly hesitant about you know, talking about the relevance of my research for these kind of present crises. I don't think you need my research to see the necessity of people getting quick access to information in languages that they can use, right? Um, that work is going on, you know, um, in Ukraine and around the borders of Ukraine at the moment. And, you know, you don't need my research in order to help find ways of getting people's voices heard in situations where they need to be heard, right? Um, if you think also of the asylum system and the courts, um, they always rely on interpreters and language specialists. Um, and I think what's become clear to me is that they're really the most important part of the system. Um, but they're often the least well understood and least well supported. Um, courts don't always really appreciate what they do. Um, they don't get paid particularly well. You know, there's not, there's not enough. I mean, this is a, a Europe-wide phenomenon. Um, in terms of not not really funding language support for refugees uh, in any adequate way. Um, now, I don't think my research really helps with that concretely. I think it's much more important to you know, support really brilliant international organisations like Translators Without Borders, for example, as an organisation that, that does work across the world, helping people get access to this kind of information. And they are working in Ukraine, as far as I can see, helping people. Um, you know, uh, access the information that they need and campaign for a decent approach to refugee policy across Europe as well. You know, I just think that's that's something that anybody can do and you don't really need research for it. I suppose the what my research is about is the kind of a more longer term thing in helping to ensure that the voices of the victims of violence, oppression and genocide are actually heard effectively, you know, in the long term, right? So thinking of people in the 1960s speaking, how can we hear their voices now? What can we hear now that wasn't heard back then? Um, and I think making that known again is really, really important because that's clearly still relevant to things that are happening, how these people speak, how the court makes it possible for them to speak, but also, you know, kind of shapes and uh, sort of restrains their speech in certain ways and what role interpreting that plays in, in helping them to, to be heard or not heard. Um, and I think translation scholarship's got a really important role to play in this. Um, and one of the things I'm, I'm really pleased about is working at Edinburgh, because I think in this school, we have some really leading scholars doing this kind of work. There's, a, there's translation studies is really strong here. Yeah. And their work is concentrating on these kind of really urgent issues. So my colleagues like Charlotte Bossel, she works on translating the testimonies of survivors of gender-based violence, for example. Um, Shebnem Suzanne Sarayeva working on Turkish women's access to translated material about maternal and neonatal health, another thing, right? Hepzibar Israel looks at the traces of translation in British colonial archives, right? So a historical approach, but we're still hugely relevant. Um, Mavis Ho, who work, works on translation technology, but has also been a practicing court interpreter in Edinburgh. Um, so there's this, this is real strength here, I think, in Edinburgh um, in, and in our school that makes us quite an important centre and helps me feel sort of supported in what I'm doing. So the relevance is really in these, these kind of longer term issues and, and 
making space for victims' voices always to be the thing that people pay most attention to in any legacy of conflict or violence or genocide. And it's true. Edinburgh University and LLC in particular is really an amazing place to be inspired in translation studies and to have those amazing points to look towards if you're a student or you're you're thinking about getting into translation studies. And then one thing I kind of wanted to say, I know you spoke on this a little bit already, but when I thought a really fascinating part about your own articles, of course, being based in the University of Edinburgh is that it will once again be translated um, from the original language yeah. and then into <laughs> And then into English. So I wanted to know when, when you know, launching this project about the, the the practice of translation and the ethics and how it was how it's done, has this material formed your own views on on translation as a practice? I find it I find it really difficult because you have to transcribe these uh, testimonies, and sometimes the witnesses are speaking in three or four different languages at once, right? And uh, finding a way of making that available to a reader of English is really tough. So. I suppose it's always just being clear about what you're doing. So, so we always translate sources, right? If we work with historical sources or sources of testimony or whatever it happens to be, we or we work with translated sources. Um, we do this all the time, um, but we don't always acknowledge what we're doing. We don't always talk about the translation as as the kind of key important issue here. Often what we're doing, and historians do this a lot, and I know I've done it as well, is we translate something in order to prove a point. And that may affect the way we translate it, in, you know, because there was always various different ways you can translate, and we might choose the one that actually supports our our particular point. Um, and we do this without really thinking. Um, so it's always something to guard against. Um, and this is re- it's really tough to, though to prov- to make these these multilingual testimonies available to an English reader while still enabling them to see what the interpreters are doing and what happens when a a witness is, is, I mean, for example, there's a there's a witness called Simon Gortland who um, uh, starts off wanting to speak in French, but his French isn't good enough, so they send away the French translator and they, they call Kapkaevin. He's a, a Polish Jew who survived Auschwitz, survived the worst of Auschwitz. He was a member of the Jewish Sonderkommando doing the kind of worst work in the, in the gas chambers and crematoria and, and managed to survive. Went to France. Um, he then he gives his testimony in sort of four different languages, right? So they start him off with a French interpreter, but he wants to speak German because he wants to speak directly to the court. His mm. German gets mixed up with his Yiddish a lot, and it becomes very hard to follow. And then they provide a Polish interpreter for him, um, but he keeps slipping backwards and forwards into these languages depending on what he's talking about, right? Sociolinguistically, it's a really really interesting testimony, um, but it's very very hard for the interpreter. To deal with um, she keeps trying to bring him back to Polish the whole time um, but actually he wants to speak German and there are times when he's talking about things that only it only really work in Yiddish because that's the language that he spoke to his fellow uh, prisoners in um, and it seems to be the court thinks this is all confusion but actually it's a really powerful testimony because it tells us something about the language use of multilingual victims who never really found a place in one of the kind of national cultures after the end of the of the second world war now how do you make that understandable to an english reader um, without lots of diacritics and and multi multicolored things to show which language is doing it sometimes i can't tell whether he's trying to speak german or yiddish you know, because the, the words are so similar, and I don't know whether he's thinking it's Yiddish or German or not. 
I just can't tell. Um, so if you translated that as a historical source, you just get rid of all that stuff and say, well, these are the things he's talking about. Um, but like that, I don't want to ignore these linguistic issues because I think they tell us about his voice and his experiences, both during his time in Auschwitz and also afterwards as a, as a migrant, as a refugee. Um, and they're about the feeling of the testimony, about the voice, and also about his the interaction with the court um, and with the interpreter and the judge. So I'm going to have to find a form of transcription that is not completely alienating for, for the reader, but actually conveys some of that information. I don't know yet how I'm going to do it, but there are plenty of models that I can draw on, so I'm sure I'll find something. Kind of getting into a little bit of, I guess, more lighthearted topics. Not that any of this wasn't in some way a very powerful statement about human empathy, I guess, mm -hmm, and also mm -hmm. how to translate that on an yes, institutional yes. level, which is so fascinating. But I know you teach a lot of these, a lot of classes at the University of Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, I was really, I mean, some of them I was, I'm sad that I'm a PhD student and, uh, and not able to take as many classes because some of them looked really fascinating when I was looking through your profile. But what are some of your favorite classes to teach um, and why do you think that is? I suppose, I mean, since we're talking about translation, I've always, I always loved doing the translation classes, right? And we, we have translation from, you know, from the first year of undergraduate right up to master's level. And I love doing it at all those levels. And we've thought really hard about how we might start to introduce students to more kind of professional approaches to translation and what the translators actually do um, when, they're, when they're translating a text. I love doing the master's course in translation because we can really get to grips with these issues. We use lots of different text types. Me and the colleague who designed this course, Iloma Bodama, um, we work quite differently, which is great for the students. Um, I do use some of this material with the students. I use one of these interpreted testimonies from the trial, and I ask them to imagine that they're translating this for a museum exhibit about the trial, which is going to be visited by people who are English speaking. Um, what do you do with this? Right? How do you give your English speaking listener access to what's going on here. Mm -hmm. It's actually, it's a really impossible task um, that I'm asking <laughs> them to do, but really it it's allows us to talk about ethic, issues of ethics and uh, language and uh, what testimony is and our attitudes towards it and our, our kind of ethical responsibilities, right, as translators. Um, so I do love doing that kind of stuff. Um, I've also teach classes on, on anti-Semitism in, in German literature. I mean, I, I started as a kind of literary person, so um, that's the stuff I tend to teach most of. And also on Holocaust testimony as well. And, you know, I've taught a course in, and finally undergraduate on Holocaust testimony for many years um, in various different ways. Um, and um, the one on anti-Semitism is quite new, uh, so I'm still working out exactly how what the best way is to approach that subject. But um, I think in just terms of sheer joy and pleasure, it's, it's always translation because it's such fun. It's so interesting. Um, just uh, when students really get hold of what they're able to do as translators with a text, that it's not about getting things right or wrong, but it's about thinking, well, how am I going to make this text available to people in the new situation? Then you can really do something with it. And I absolutely love what they come up with. They're always, they're always really special. And so I know you said you've been at um, the University of Edinburgh for a while now. So I just wanted to know, during your time here, have you gotten a chance to explore Scotland? Yeah. And if so, where has been your favourite place in Scotland to visit <laughs> or to stay or even just last time... Um, 
the our guest said her favorite place was Mary's Milk Bar. So if you have a favorite ice cream shop as well, that's <laughs> right. also a valid. Right, good. Okay. Valid, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's sort of, yeah, it's weird. I mean, I'm not a great person for the great outdoors particularly, which mm. is a bit odd for somebody who's, you know, Scotland's my home. Um, mm-hmm. I've always been a big city person really mm-hmm. i grew up in a small town and i think people who grew up in small towns like tend to like big cities more than anywhere else because they just yeah. offer us more than we had when we were growing up um mm-hmm. so i lived in manchester for a while um and berlin um mm-hmm. and you know those are two cities that i really love obviously it's edinburgh and glasgow are amazing cities and i've lived mm-hmm. in edinburgh for a long time now and i really love it here and i was trying to think about what my favorite place would be um, and I think if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, I would have probably said, you know, one of the pubs in Edinburgh, probably, um, like the Bow Bar on Victoria Street or something like that, where I've had some very happy, happy moments. But um, a couple of years ago, I went to Orkney for the first time. Um, and there was a particularly special place there, uh, which is the Ness of Bodgar. I don't know if you know that. It's uh, um it's a sort of a narrow strip of land between uh, a freshwater lake and the sea. Um, and there's a settlement on it. There's a little kind of village on it. Um, and a few years ago, relatively recently, they discovered a huge archaeological site underneath this. I mean, just massive, right? Um, there's already been a stone circle there, right? It's not quite, you know, in, in, looking quite similar to Stonehenge. And I, I think slightly older than Stonehenge in this incredible landscape. Um, and uh, but they discovered this this site, this Neolithic site, which is massive, like an enormous settlement, very rich with a history that seems to have spread over several hundred years. And it's being ex- excavated now for for quite a while. They can only excavate a couple of months a year because of the weather conditions. Um, but if you go and visit it, it's you're in the middle of this landscape, which seems very lonely, but actually was once or incredibly rich and right in the center of a civilization um and um that was really spectacular i mean it was an amazing day because it was beautiful weather and we had curlews and larks and birds of prey and all sorts of things you know happening at the same time so that was a very special memory to me but i would say that i don't know if it's that in my favorite place but it's it's the place that i've been most impressed by in the place mm. where I've had a kind of a, a shock of of sort of strangeness, but recognition um, when I got there, I thought that was absolutely amazing. And I definitely want to go back there. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things about the Highlands and the beauty of the Orkneys and the Isles is that it really, I think, asks you to kind of just focus on the landscape. So yeah. sometimes I think it's easy to forget about the people, but you're so right about finding that yeah. there have been people there for so long must be that sort of moment of awe yeah depth you know that's it's i think this, the, the landscape is you know is another place i really like and it's that it's the around the, the culloden museum just outside inverness mm. um i don't normally go for battlefield reconstructions very much but that is a really spectacular museum in the middle of an incredible landscape um yeah. with a really interesting way of telling the story and questioning sort of you know, common perspectives on it, you know, the Jacobite yeah. rising. So, um, yeah, I think everything's kind of embedded in this landscape um, yeah. in a way which which does make you feel that you're part of something bigger, shall we say. Thank you so much for joining me today. This has been an absolutely fascinating time listening to you and <laughs> avoiding my own work to listen to yours is much more satisfying than otherwise. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> 
Beyond the Books is a podcast from the University of Edinburgh's School of Literatures, Languages and Cultures. I'm Emma Aviette and thank you so much for listening.